0: Hi everybody, my name is Billy and I am an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to be here this morning sober. And uh, you know, as I look out, I know so many of you, and uh, you just don't know how much I love you this morning. If I'd have seen a bunch of strangers, I don't know what I would have done because I'm so nervous this morning. But I want to I want to thank Dick uh, for asking me to talk, uh, and the committee for allowing me to be here this morning, and each one of you for being here this morning. I want to thank Marlene for a stalk of bologna and some townhouse crackers. but uh, That came along with the basket, Clancy. You know, they, y'all don't know if you've got any of those. Not- come over the room, I'll give you some bologna. And uh, I just feel good about being here this morning. Uh, being, being asked to talk at any AA meeting for me has always been a, a, a privilege in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I've heard so many people say, i got to go talk over here, i got to go do that. You know, it's always been a privilege for me to go talk somewhere in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I want to thank the committee and, and, and to everybody that's here this morning for allowing me to talk at my own home convention, you know. And that's, that's one of the biggest honors I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to thank each and every one of you being here this morning. Love you. I never know how hard start. it makes me feel, every time I talk on one of these things, it makes me feel a whole lot like Elizabeth Taylor's eighth husband. I know what's expected of me, but I don't know if I'll be able to perform, you know. <laughs> and I get started, and somewhere along the line, I'll, I'll take a drink of liquor, and uh, we'll get on with the subject. But uh, I always uh, like to welcome the newcomers and Alcoholics Anonymous. If any of you here this morning, uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home, uh, uh, somebody always reminds me of a thing that happened to us one time that Marietta and I, well, it happened on the way up here. Marietta and I had to stop at a service station and get some gas. And while I stopped at that service station, I looked over on the side of that building over there, and they had an old farm tractor sitting over there. And that thing looked just so pretty and so shiny and everything looked so good on it and love old farm equipment. And I walked over to that tractor and I looked at it, and when I got over, I noticed that thing didn't have any seat on it, you know. And we all an old piece of equipment, you know, you can find a seat to put on it and make it look good, you know. And I walked around the side of it and walked up the front, and it was so shiny and had a crank in the front. And I had a chrome on the thing here and walked around the other side there, and everything was looking good. And I don't know why I didn't notice that, but when I looked up there again, that thing didn't have a steering wheel on it. You know, things are starting to get a little more serious, you know, if you ain't got a place to sit and a place to drive. But I went on around the back of that tractor, and it had a, 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 just a huge sign on the back of that thing. And it said, this tractor is made from someone who's lost their ass and don't know which way to turn. Well, <laughs> if 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 you're a newcomer to Alcoholics Anonymous, welcome. If you feel like that old tractor, I know exactly how you felt, you know. And, and uh... We lived out on a farm down here about two hours down the road. I'll, I'll first tell you that my uh, home group is a Barstown Thursday night group uh, down the road about two hours. Uh, my sobriety date is June the 10th of 1982, and my sponsor's name is Kenny Brown. And those are uh, most important things that I could probably tell you about myself this morning. But anyway, I was living on that farm down about two hours in the road in Bargetown and we're the bourbon capital of the world. We got a little sign outside of town that tells us that, and uh, we uh, lived down on the farm. Had three boys. And Mom and dad was there, and we didn't have a whole lot of money it was during the forties. Uh, and then uh, had everything that we needed to live. Uh, Mom and dad told us one thing, showed us one thing that has brought through through my entire life, and they taught us about love. Uh, maybe we didn't get to go places and do the things that other people did, but we had all the love in the world that we ever needed. And my mom dad still feels that. You know my mom does. She's in a nursing home out in Barstown now. My father's dead, my two older brothers are dead. And uh I went to see my mom just before I come up to North Kentucky here and she was uh getting ready to eat dinner, but anyway, uh she asked me, she said, You going up for a preach again this weekend? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mom going up free. She don't know what it is, but she knows it's keeping me sober and it's okay, you know. <laughs> but uh I love my mom dearly and, and uh I didn't uh, we didn't have any problem with alcohol out on the farm and and you know what uh, dad moved off the farm about seven years old and um he went to work at a, a distillery and uh as far as I know we didn't have any problem with alcohol in our family at all. <coughs> Excuse me. We had friends that came along to our house and they drank, uh, had uh, beer, whiskey, and you know, type of things there. And I'm sure that along the table somewhere I might have snuck off a corner, you know, or maybe got a little glass of beer or something. I didn't get drunk for the very first time or didn't really have anything to drink for the first time because I was 14 years old. And that seemed like a popular time for most people in Alcoholics Anonymous or maybe just a little bit earlier to start Experimenting, experimenting with what we're going to be doing, you know, at 12, 13, 14 years old. But I ran with some guys that were a little bit older than I was, which seemed like another symptom of, a, of us. And uh, we were in Bardstown, and I had an uncle that a bootleg whiskey out the back door of the pool room, and Ben's how he was my uncle. These guys sent me in there to get the whiskey, and I brought the whiskey out, and Ben's how he was my whiskey, my uncle, and I went and got the whiskey. I got the first drink. I do not know how much I drank that day. It could have been that one drink, or it could have been the whole bottle, or another bottle. I have no idea. So that alcohol done to me the very first time what it did to me the very last time that I drank. Is I drank, and I got drunk, I puked, and I passed out. And in between the age of 14 and 40, I don't know how many... Blackouts or how many passing-outs and coming-tos there was in between that, but there was a lot of them. But alcohol done to me the first time what it did to me the very last time. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have a whole lot to do. Uh, I went to school and uh, didn't have any problem in school. Other than the fact, that I didn't like being there, and Daddy, he always, every time the brothers up there would kick me out of school, Daddy would take me back up there. He spent more time in school than I did. And when I graduated, I left my diploma over to his house because he's the one that earned it, you know. (coughs) And uh, I, I, uh, well, I was in high school. I I met a a real pretty young lady, and uh, she was uh, at her grandmother's house. And I went with my mother down to see uh, this lady and. She was down there, and uh, she was 13 years old, and I was 13 years old, and we was at this birthday party, and so we were just having a good time, running through the house, and she had on a, a pair of paddle pushers and, and a little halter type top, there, what it was she had on. She run, through. she had a little ponytail, you know, and she run through the house. And everything would bounce in all the right places, you know. It just looked real good. And I thought that she was just about the prettiest thing I have ever seen in my whole life. And, you know, i re met her somewhere around the age of 15, and I started visiting her up in uh, Willisburg, where she lived at. And uh, I, I just fell in love with my lady, you know. And uh, this guy that I went with was my future brother-in-law, and he would be the driver from the first we started going up, and I turned 16 years old, and I, Daddy would let me drive the car, and we went to Willisburg to see this young lady, and uh, she would uh, come out. And, well, you know, today, let me explain it this way. Today, you know, you see young ladies driving around in pickup trucks. they got these great big old doulies and everything else, riding around, beeping horns, Hey, how y'all doing? What y'all doing? Well, now, when I was growing up, if you was riding around in a pickup truck, the girls didn't even much more want to talk to you. They didn't want to go out. If you were going to ask one of them dates, you damn sure didn't pick them up in a truck. And, and then her daddy and was a whole lot older than her mom, and he was real set in his ways. And, you know, today girls will go up and beat the horn, and the boy runs out and jump in the truck. Now, you didn't go to that man's house and blow no horn wanting the lady to run out. If you beat that horn, that old man is going to come run out of that house. You didn't want that old man running out there, you know. And, and when you went to see her, you had to go to the door and knock on the door. And, and, and her daddy was a type of fellow that thought you ought to do all. You come courting out on the front porch. We had a problem. He didn't have no porch. We didn't wonder how we were going to get around there, So about dusk or something like that, he would allow us to go outside and... uh she would come out, and we'd go out there and sit down in the car, you know, and I'd be sitting down near the driver on the driver's side because I hadn't got a license. I big boy, I could start driving at 16, you know. She would come out, and she'd sneak in there, and she'd cuddle over next door to me and I'd get up real close underneath my arm, you know, and she'd look at me in them very big old brown eyes, and my hands would go in search of serenity, you know. And... <laughs> um, she would, she would look at me with them big old brown eyes, and she would look. I know she read that book about Alcoholics Nautilus before I got to her because she would tell me such things like, if you want what I have, you should be willing to go to any length to get it. You know. So there I was. Believe me, half, nothing, half measures availed me nothing. When we stood at the turning point at 18 years old, we got married. And I can tell you today, and as honest as I can be, when I look at my lady today, still about the prettiest damn thing I've ever see, <laughs> Love you, honey. Love you much. Love. You. I don't know what I would have done in this life, of this program of alcoholic synonyms without my lady. I really don't. Uh, She's been so much a part of my life, and I love her so much that I couldn't have made it. I just know I couldn't make it anyway. <laughs> We, uh, we got married at the age of 18, and I was in the Navy and couldn't uh, do anything uh, other than be in the service, and uh, I was stationed in Norfolk for a little while, and then I was stationed down in Cuba, and Marietta wasn't allowed to be with me because I didn't have enough rank when I was in there. We finally moved up to New Jersey where she was going to be allowed to be with me for the first time, and we were going to have our first argument, our first child, and our first drunk within a very short time. <laughs> and... Uh, the argument that we had had nothing to do with alcohol. If you, if you have noticed up to this point, I only had the one drunk at the age of 14, that I've told you about because that's the only problem I ever had. A drink of alcohol from the time that I was in school up until the time that we had our first child right after there, alcohol was a thing. It was not the thing. I did not have a problem with alcohol at that time. I could drink and do what I wanted to and have a good time. But, you know, somewhere about this time, alcohol started meaning more to me. But when Marietta and I had this argument, it had everything to do with my ego. It had nothing to do with alcohol. It seems like that our little girl had been born, our oldest child, and she was uh, laying on the bed, and I'd done something that I'd, you normally didn't do. I came home for lunch that day. My wife was over next door, which is probably about from here over to the first row of chairs there from our house, and uh, the little girl was crying. And when I went in, uh, Maretta came back, and I asked, who do you think you are leaving my little girl in here on this bed crying like that, you know? This is my baby, not hers. I don't know how I was going to have this baby do anything by myself, but this is my child. And I don't know where I got my mother and father was not like that. Her mother and father was not like that. But somewhere inside, those places that we don't talk about, those feelings that we don't talk about sometimes, the hurt and the pain and everything else that's on the inside, that's where that feeling of that egoism come back out, and this was my child, and she was going to have to do it my way. And the lady lived in hell for a long time because of that. We had our first drunk because I was getting out of the service, and we was at a squadron party, had been through the night drinking, and I got drunk and almost passed out at the table, I think, but Marietta had to take me home. <coughs> Excuse me. And she'd done something for me that night that she'd done many times. Had the shoe been on the other foot, I doubt if it would have happened this way. But when she took me home she finally got me up the steps and into the room where I was at the time, and I passed out. And Marietta, in the goodness of, of, of way she has always been, got a pillow and put it under my head and got a fan so I wouldn't be too hot, and I laid on the floor, passed out, and this beautiful young lady was there all by herself with, another baby, with the baby again, you know, at the age of 18. Neither one of us had been away from home too much. She hadn't been away from, and, and this started our life together, you know. And this is not the way that I had planned it. You know, when we first got married, the one thing I wanted to do, I wanted to be a good husband, I wanted to be a good father, good employee, good son. And through alcoholism, and over the period of years that I drank, I was a failure at each one of those places. I hear so many times in Alcoholics Anonymous the things that we're supposed to do to stay sober. Many people tell us to make 90 meetings in 90 days, you know. I don't I don't adhere to that myself. I mean, it's okay for other people if they can do it. But, you know, if I was sober for 88 or 89 days and I was absolutely unable to make my 90th meeting like they told me to, I would become a failure again. And that's the way I've always felt on the inside. I would be a failure of things. But Marietta and I finally got out of the, out of the uh, Navy. We went home, found a little job down there delivering milk and done all kinds of silly things with the milk truck and uh, things around Barterstown. Finally got me a job down at Ford Motor Company uh, in Louisville where I was to be able to retire after 32 years. Their fault, not mine. I'd done everything I could to get fired, and they wouldn't <laughs> always hire me back. You know, I <coughs> They give me a they, I hired in a uh, Ford Motor Company down there. They gave me a little job down there working in a body shop. Now, I'm not subject to change. I don't know. Uh, I hear this from many folks in Alcoholics Anonymous. They're not subject to change in no way. I went into the body shop, and 32 years later, I come out. So, you know, what? I don't. I just don't change very much. But I, I went in there, and uh, they gave me this little job working on the line, working, and it was hot, Lord and mercy, it was in June and everything, if it's... Ninety degrees on the outside, it's hundred and five degrees on the inside in the body shop. And about eleven o'clock, this bell went off and everybody went off to dinner. I mean, psh, they gone, and there I was standing by myself because I didn't know how to get around that plant, and I was afraid to leave a line I wouldn't be able to get back and I'd get fired. So I sat down on the blind. I ate me a sandwich and seen a water fountain and got me a drink of water. And I watched these guys and they come back. You know, when, when, when they left, they had just before they they looked like they were tired and all hung out, you know, and couldn't hardly move. And when they come back, I, there had been a miraculous recovery going on. Them guys looked like they was happy, joyous, and free when they got back, you know. And, and I uh, asked them, I said, "What y'all do? I ate my sandwich. I don't feel like that. We don't eat no sandwich. What y'all do? I said, we went to Skyway Liquor Store. I found me at home. Never seen it, but I knew where I was gonna live." And I started out, and I found out that I could leave that body shop at 11 o'clock, just like them other guys, and I could run. I would go across the chassis line, go across the cushion Park, go across the trim line, go out across the chassis line, go out and get my trucks, go out across the pavement, and be over in six minutes. I could drink for 18 minutes, eight or six minutes in reverse, and I was a tired son of a gun when I got back. And I asked them guys, what y'all do? I drank mine, and they said, well, we, what do you drink? I drank, I drank me a beer. Well, we don't drink beer. I and mean, We drink whiskey. And that's as scientific as I can get about the progression of alcohol. <laughs> you know, besides that, if you drink a whole lot of beer, you have to go pee, and they get mad at you. So that's as scientific as I can get about that kind of thing. So I found out that i go work to the Skyway Liquor Store, and I could drink me a half pint, and I could feel pretty good, and I could tape another one on my leg, and I'd come back inside the plant there, and about 2.30, that first one wears off, and I reached down there, and I pulled that tape off my leg. I pulled every damn hair I had out of my leg. That's slick. <laughs> slick of slicks of Ford Motors Company. And, and that's, that's the way I started to drink at Ford Motor Company. I mean, you know, right off. And, and you know, I, uh, I've never been able to associate uh, alcoholism with a morning drink because everything we did was in the morning. I went to work at 4.30 in the morning, worked eight hours. And by the time we get off at one thirty, you know, that was still part of the morning. <coughs> and, and that's everything we did in the morning time. So we drank all morning what it amounted to, and then after we got off from work, I'd stop over the Skyway Liquor Store and, and get a cup of beers, you know, and, and going to go home. And so many times, you know, I could, I could really do that. I could, When I first started, I could get two beers and go on home. But over a period of years, and I don't know how many years it was, if I'd give you dates and all kind of things, I, I, they would be wrong probably. But over a period of years, I got to where I was stopping at that Skyway liquor store, and, and I couldn't make it home. Couldn't make it any further. <coughs> you know, uh, Marietta was asking, you know, how can you get drunk on two beers? You know, it, it, Everybody knows you're going to stop at the liquor store and get two beers. You know, just two beers. You never get them. It's a whole lot like these three guys that went to the judge. And he went and had to go to court. And the judge asked the first guy, he said, How much did you have when you got pulled over for drunken driving? I only had two beers. That's a lie. I'm going to make an example of you. I'm going to charge you $500 and ten days in jail. He asked this other guy, he said, How much did you have? He said, I only had two beers. That's a lie five hundred day five hundred dollars and ten days in jail. He asked that third guy and he looked at that judge and he just thought. He said, Well, I don't know, no, Judge. He said it might have been one or it might have been three. But it damn sure wasn't two. <laughs> <laughs> I got to where I could sort of tell Maryetta it wasn't, you know, not two, you know, I would tell her plenty, many, some. Uh, I tell her something, but, you know, I, I don't know how many years uh, in the making it takes uh, for us to drink our way into the way I was. I, I don't feel like I was born an alcoholic. I feel like I would drink myself and become an alcoholic. I'm probably born with every feeling there is of alcoholism. But if you don't take a drink of whiskey, I don't know how you would ever know it. So uh, I feel like I drank myself. And the most important part of that is I know why I'm an alcoholic today. That's the most important thing. I don't know. uh, I was telling Marietta these things. And over that period of years, I would start sitting on those stools over at Skyway Liquor Store. And, you know, in your life, it may have been some other city, some other name of a tavern, Different time of day or whatever, but it's all the same when it comes down to it. I sit on them old steps down there at the Skyway Liquor Store, and we go in there in the afternoon, and you're going to get a two beers, and you're going to go home. You know, the guys that I went to drink with, they would go in with me, and somewhere along about five o'clock, these guys would get up, and they were going to go home. And I'd ask you know, they're they leaving. I, went, where are you going? Why are you leaving? Why are you getting up? You know, well, we're going to go home, we're going to be with our wife, and we're going to be with our children, and we're going to go have a good time. Like. And, I, you know, I, I, would, I would call them panty waste or something like that, you know, just laugh at them. You know, I don't have to one. Inside, that place where we don't talk about, that place where we hide those feelings, that place that we don't want to tell people where we're hurting at. I sat there on those bar stools day after day after day. And I felt just like those guys did. I wanted to go home. I wanted to get up and go home, and I wanted to be with my wife and three children. And I wanted to do the same thing those guys done. But if there was another drink of alcohol to be had or something else to be done, I couldn't do it. I could not get up off those steps and those stools and leave. My mom and daddy told us about love out on the farm. I learned to love my wife and my children. But if you were like me and you needed another drink or you wanted another drink, love is not enough sometimes. Love is not enough. I believe in my heart that I love my wife and my children as much as I do today. But after I drank, I couldn't show it. It was lost. It was gone. I, couldn't, I just could not show them how much I love them. And I would sit there on those stools. And sometimes during nights, you know, these guys, some of these guys may come back. And I'd ask them, you know, they'd get one beer or two beers, they'd leave. Where are you going? We're going home. We're going to be with my wife tonight, we're going to be with my children, and I'm going to get up and go to work tomorrow. As long as the music's playing, there's another drink to be had, and, you know, the cue balls are clicking down the pool table with a slot and running down the jukebox going to listen to some music. You know, it was there. Couldn't get up and leave. If these guys go home and I want to do that, I I hurt so bad on the inside. That's how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't get to Alcoholics Anonymous because I drank too much. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous because I hurt too much. That's what I did. I hurt. Just hurt on the inside. I could sit on those bar stools sometimes, guys and girls. You know, I I could sit there and I see those guys go home. They're going to be with their wife and my heart would be just hurting so bad, you know. It would be just like a balloon that's on the inside. If you ever seen a balloon when you squeeze that thing where all the air is just before it comes out of it and bursts? That's how bad my heart was hurting. You know, I would to do that. Couldn't go. Sometimes if I was real lucky, I could get out the door and make it out to the truck and maybe sleep in the truck outside on some rocks or where I was at. And if I was really lucky, I could get back across the street over the parking lot and the guy would work me up and go to work the next morning. And it would all start over again. The insanity of alcohol, doing the same things over and over, expecting different results. It's always started out early for me, ended up early for me, you know. I don't know how many years all these kind of things happened. I don't know how many times these things happened. Our house was a total mess, total chaos when I came home. Over the years, you know, I would come home and and the children uh, would leave. As soon as they'd see that truck coming down the driveway, that they would all just go to the children, go to the neighbors' homes because they didn't want to be home with Daddy because they didn't know where Daddy was going to be cussing, what he was going to be saying, how he was going to be acting, whether he going to make it all the way inside the house. It just a total mess. And, you know, Marietta was the one that took the brunt of, the, of all the uh, uh, things that happened in alcoholism. Uh, we alcoholics, I think, are lucky In a way that when we hurt on the inside, that we can sit and we can get a bottle and we can drink a little more and it'll bury that hurt. Maybe only for just a little while. Maybe until next morning if we're lucky. That hurt will be back, you know. But for the people that we love, for our families, for our friends and those that really care about us, they've got no bottle to hide in. They've got no bottle to cry in. They've got no bottle to crawl into and hide. And the only thing that we can do is just hurt. And my heart goes out to every person that belongs to Alanine and all of our children today. God knows that I don't want to see the, the pain I've seen in my own children's eyes like that. And I dearly so loved the program of al because I don't know if we could have made it through our lives without Marietta being in the program of Al-Anon and practicing the program the way she did. And I was doing these, <clears throat> doing these things and hurt, hurting and wanting to get things over with and wanting to do this, that, and the other. I was uh, driving down 65 many times from Louisville back out to my house, where I was going to be going home if I was really lucky about getting there. And I'd be driving down 65 and just thinking what a relief it would be if you just whip that steering wheel just a little bit and hit a big old semi right in the face, you know, and it would win the whole thing. So many times I thought about that, and I don't know, I guess it's God's way of saying i got something different to do for you because it never happened. The feelings were there, wanted to get out of it. You know, sometimes when you're sitting there and you want to, we used to go to places that didn't have alcohol. And when you, when I went to places that did not have any alcohol there, you could sit in the seat and you could start getting those old sweats, you know, and places you're getting clammy feeling, and, and you're, it just seemed like after a while your whole body would start to vibrate because you haven't got something to drink. And it's that mental obsession that starts in that mind, which starts to tell you, without the drink, I'm not going to be able to make it. It's not the body telling me that. It's my mind. And my mind will play tricks on me. I've heard Marietta say many times, if you follow your heart instead of your mind, things will be much better. And I believe that. But the mind will tell me, trick, you know, I can take one drink and nothing's going to happen. Everything will be okay. You go get that one drink. And if you're like me, you take one drink. And I cannot guarantee you what I'm going to do, where I'm going, where I'm going to be with, what I'm going to say, or how I'm going to act when I I cannot guarantee you my actions after I start to drink. And that's the way it has been for me. I went through many of these things. Marietta and I was going through a divorce. We had these three beautiful little children, two girls and a boy. And they're just great children today. And uh, I went into, started going, ducking into uh, uh, treatment centers, trying to get people off my back. Trying to get the judges off my back. Most of our money was gone by now because i have been wrecking cars, paying judges, lawyers, uh, getting out of jail, uh, doing, doing everything I could. If Ed was real lucky, she could roll me on a Friday night if I made it home and get a little bit of money, you know. And, uh, what food they had in the house many times was just what my mom and dad or her mom and dad would bring to our house. And it wasn't the money that I didn't have, it was money that I made that I spent on other things. Things and and people that I shouldn't have been spending money on, you know, doing the things I shouldn't have been taking my money home. I wasn't doing that. I can remember one time, well, I started going to treatment centers, and I don't have anything against treatment centers. I went 13 times, thank you. (laughs) And uh, the only reason I went to those treatment centers, I was getting people off my back, saving my job, getting out of jail. I went for every reason except to get sober, you know. Places like that will give you all the tools that you need, but they cannot give you the desire not to drink. We heard it last night. If you do not have that desire in your heart not to drink, you're going to have a sad road to hoe when this program will alcoholics anonymous. If we can somewhere find, if we can somewhere reach on down on the inside and find that desire not to drink more than we want to drink, that maybe we've got a shot i stand sober one day at a time in programs program of Alcoholics I did not have that desire. I did not want to hurt. That's what I told you. I did not want to hurt. That's what got me to Alcoholics Anonymous, the pain. And when I went to these places, I would tell those people just exactly what they wanted to hear, and they thought I was a prime candidate for sobriety. And just as soon as I would leave, I would, you know, I'd get drunk. I came home from, a, from this treatment center one time, and Marietta and I had uh, been having problems because I had been going to see people I shouldn't be seeing, doing things I shouldn't be doing, staying the times I shouldn't be staying. And uh, when I left this treatment center, uh, I left this lady. I called and asked her if she'd take me home. And, of course, she said she would. And we got about halfway to my house, and we stopped because I needed a Coca-Cola, right? And, and for, you could stop at a service station and get a Coca-Cola, but I stopped down at Fairmount Gardens where that was my favorite water hole on the way home, and I went in there to get me a Coca-Cola, and then sent up a screwdriver, and there I was. An hour out of the treatment center, and I was drinking. I was drunk before I got home. And when Marietta got home, we just had a, a hellacious battle about drinking and treatment centers and all these kind of things. It, it was just an awful scene. Well, we had this argument, and uh, I, I, I really don't know what happened. I, I, I'm not clear on it, and I've never really asked or tried to find out, because I, I don't know what, what really Marietta was there, and, and we were arguing. And I don't know where she slapped me. I hit her, where I pushed her. I really don't really know what happened, and Marietta Marietta fell. And as she fell, she hit her head on the door casing that was there. And she fell on the floor, and she made a just a, a terrible, terrible place on her head. And, and she was crying, and, and she was laying on the floor, and I was scared because I you know, I, I really thought i really hurt her bad. Our little children uh, were standing and watching all this, you know. And they were screaming their little heads off because they didn't know why Daddy was doing this to Mama. And they may have been smarter because Daddy didn't know why he was doing that either. Mama and Daddy didn't know anything about alcoholism. We talk about alcoholism when we think about alcoholism. We think a whole lot about the, the story that Tammy told last night about not being able to drink going into prisons. We think about the guys that are in halfway houses. We think about the guys that are in bridges, under the bridges. Some of those guys want to be there. Some are unable to get out. But if you want to see real, unadulterated alcoholism, unwanted, and, and it's detrimental to human mankind, you just look into the eyes of your children. There you will see the alcoholism that will tear you apart from stem to stern with no end to any of it. It is the hurt that you will never forget, all the pain that you can see in those little beautiful eyes. I saw my children that day. I have prayed to God many times. I never, ever had to look at that again to see that happen again in our home. Those little children had every kind of hurt. Every kind of pain, confusion, anger, everything that you would see that was not good was in those little eyes that day. And when I wanted to stop, I wanted to pick Marietta up and I wanted to hold her in my arms. I wanted to tell her that I was sorry. I wanted to tell her I did not want to be that way. I wanted to tell those little kids that I didn't want to be that way. This is not what Daddy wanted to be like. You know? When I asked Marietta, was she okay? She said yes. If you'll excuse my friends, the only thing I knew how to do was to kick her and say, get up, you bitch, if you're okay. And I left and got more alcohol. Love is not Enough if the pain is great enough. It just does not cover the pain that's on the inside for me. All these things kept happening, and Meredith would tell me about these fits I would go into when I was drinking. I'd come home in blackouts and didn't even know I was there, and I'd wake up the next morning, holes would be in the wall, the furniture was tipped over, and I'd ask Meredith what happened? She said, You know what happened. I don't know what happened. What happened? You did this. You did that to us. I couldn't have. I couldn't have. I could not have done that. Yeah, you did. Children, yeah, you did. You know. And that happened so many times that I had to start believing it. And I quit asking, you know. On june tenth, nineteen eighty two, I sat on some old steps at Pleasant Grove Hospital. Crying like a baby because I had absolutely no idea in God's world how to quit drinking. The sad thing about the whole thing is, I had been coming to Alcoholics Anonymous for over two years. I had good sponsors. I had good people to follow. People took me to meetings that were stained sober. I came to your meetings. I chaired your meetings. I read your book i done everything that you told me I was supposed to do, and I thought I was doing everything right. But I was missing that one ingredient for sobriety. I did not have that desire to stay sober, not to drink. I had the desire not to hurt. And I say these was your meeting, your books, and everything, because we do have that tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous that tells us that if we're going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, we need that desire not to drink. One of our traditions. Marietta was already in Al-Anon, and thank God for al because she was doing her thing. She was uh, That weekend she was gone, and she was with some and in Louisville doing the thing and uh, having a great time. And I was at the Treatment Center, and she finally found out where I was. There's some way or another anyway. She came come and got me, and on the way home, uh, I told her that I felt different, you know, But on the way home, she told me also that she would never, ever see me with any type of sobriety whatsoever in our life. That we would never be happy because I was not going to have any sobriety. I could not stay sober. And I believed her for a while. But anyway, that day, there was a feeling on the inside. If you've had it, you know what I'm talking about. If you've not had it, I don't know if I can describe it. But that feeling is there that says... Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I told her about that. And she told me about the times that she had prayed that I would die on the way home or get killed somewhere because she would have money. That her and her children could live and she could pay the rent and she'd have food in the house, you know. And she'd tell me about the time that she was sitting in that chair looking out the window waiting for some damn drunk to come home just so they'd get another beating, you know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. We alcoholics are got to be the most favored of God's people in the world. Be able to find the people that love us like they do. Where do we find these people to love us like that? I don't know. We just got to be the luckiest people in the world. To find such wonderful people to love us. And she would tell me about the time that she hurt. She sat there. But you know, I told her I thought things were going to be okay. Okay is different from <laughs> well, okay is okay. Everything's not been all right, but everything's been okay. Anyway, we started on this journey in Alcoholics Anonymous, which I have dearly loved from the day that I first started coming in sobriety. When I first started coming, they told me to find me a good sponsor. And that seems like a prerequisite to, to being sober, that you find a good sponsor that can lead you through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I looked around in Bardstown there, and I looked all over the place, and I could not find me a good sponsor. So I just got me two half-assed. <laughs> yeah, they worked. They worked. And I started this journey, this little one little guy there the name of Kenny. He took me under his wing, and we drove and drove and drove. We wore out two old cars of his going to meeting after meeting. He uh, I'll I tell you about Kenny why I thought that he would be a, a really a good sponsor, because I had seen him drunk. I had seen him in a bar room with his wife, and they almost kicked him out because he was dancing where he wasn't supposed to be dancing at. And this was after he done took me to some A and A meetings, you know. <laughs> so I thought he'd be a pretty good sponsor if he could get sober. I knowed anybody could, so here we were, and, and I, I got to going with Kenny, and Kenny and I started to write. And our my education in Alcoholics Anonymous has been slow. That uh, we talk about that that great. Uh, vision that Bill Wilson had, the levitation from the bed and all the kind of things there. Uh, that would be a great thing if it happened to all of us, but I'm sure like what the good doctor said, that you have that educational type uh, of thing, and that's what I've had to have, just that educational type, all these little things they have. I mean, if Kenny and I started riding, and we started going to AA meetings, and we'd be talking, we just talk, and we would go to a meeting, and sometimes we wouldn't be through talking after the meeting and we'd get over somewhere about 9 o'clock and we'd start riding and we'd talk and it wouldn't be finished talking and we'd ride some more and directly you'd hear Marietta and Joyce and Kenny and his wife at the time and, and uh, they would be calling one another and you'd say, you think them damn fools out there drunk somewhere? Where are they at? You know. Uh, you know, one of the things that has always made me about Alcoholics Anonymous has been one of the biggest things I've ever loved about Alcoholics Anonymous is to see two great big old ugly guys stand there together talking about God. That has been the highlight of everything I've seen now. We had this one fellow over in E-town, over in Springfield, by the name of Buck. I'll never forget this guy because he helped me and he never knew it. But he said from a talk, from his podium, when he was sober one time, that nothing could ever happen to he and his wife unless they let it. And that was young in sobriety, and I heard that, and Marietta and I have not let that thing happen to us yet. And I started these things, doing these kinds. Kenny introduced me to the book, and I believe that is the only plan of a recovery that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a big book about Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps is laid out in order, and that's the way I was going to have to do them in order to stay sober. And I started doing these steps along with Kenny, both of us were doing them at the same time. You know, when we started writing, we started reading, we started talking about God, we started talking about the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And... I've got me a home group, and I think a home group to anybody that comes in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you haven't got a home group, you're just cutting yourself short. That home group is the place that we start to take responsibility for our actions in Alcoholics Anonymous, the place where we have to clean up, the place where we want to leave our garbage at night, where we talk about the ashtrays, Where what good they do, you know. And, and you know, all those kind of government took a whole lot of our 12-step work. We are taking out of smoking out all these buildings, you know. With, I guess it'll be all right. But I started doing those things, and we started going with me and got some involved in service work. And that's how I met so many of you people that's here today, is through service work and Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, if you don't like service work, I'm glad, because if you had been there, I may not have had a place for me. So I'm glad that everybody's got their own place in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started doing it, and I I really actually I love doing the service of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh... One of those things that said you got to surrender to win. you got to give it away in order to keep it. All those dumb things that they say that finally make sense when you get sober, you know. It finally makes sense once you get sober. I got to go into these meetings, and I got to be a, a, a drunken GSR. <laughs> yep, in my home group, I was elected a drunken GSR. Now, I didn't know that was against alcoholics, anonymous wishes. You know, we ain't supposed to be no drunken GSR. And I didn't know you were supposed to resign or anything like that. probably wouldn't have, because I love titles. And, and I just started, you know, I just went on. I finally got to be a sober GSR, my home group. And I was lucky enough to be elected DCM of District 5 and out here in Kentucky. And, uh, and then I was uh, lucky enough to be elected delegate to the General Service Conference in New York City. And, you know, I thought that would be the epitome of sobriety. You know, I had been going through the steps. Kenny was helping me with steps. I was learning about traditions and concepts. I was getting everything that I was needing to know about Alcoholics Anonymous in one little ball or wax here because I was doing what I was asked to do. I thought I was doing everything, you know. But I was sober and I was happy. And, and you know, many times I see some of our older members of Alcoholics Anonymous, they sort of stop coming to as many meetings as we start out with We don't go to as many meetings as we normally do. And, you know, if if we let the excitement of Alcoholics Anonymous die, our meetings will die. We need to keep Alcoholics Anonymous exciting. The more meetings we go to, the more exciting it is to see the new people come in, to see the love that we have to offer, to see the pain that they've been through, that maybe we'll be able to help through the grace of God. They won't have to feel that anymore. And, and I started having a good time. Right? I was started feeling good in alcoholics. That pain, that hurt, all that feelings that was on the inside started to leave. And it was going away. And I was having these good feelings. I got to be that delegate to the general service conference. And I walked out on the floor in New York City on the first time. And I had tears in my eyes, you know, because, you know, being elected delegate to the State of Kentucky is a long cry from laying on the kitchen floor with a pillow on your head, you know. That's a long cry an alcoholic smile. I could not have done any of that if it had not been for people just like you and so many of you that's in this room this morning. I had to have every, each and every one of you to help me do that. And I cried when I got to the general service conference, you know. Sometimes we get to gathering up all these titles that we have. The ego starts setting in. You start to thinking that you're going to be the best thing that ever happened to Alcoholics Anonymous. You start going around. You get to be helping with making all these little rules and all these occasions. And you get to be a, a teacher and a guru. And, you get sponsoring all these people over here, you sponsor you get to be the best sponsor there is, you get a whole lot of people, you get to be big in your own mind, you're getting bigger in alcoholics all at the same time you're going to all these conferences. You're gonna be the guru of the East Coast, guru of the West Coast, you're gonna be the best thing and the highest thing in Alcoholics Anonymous you've ever been. And I can stand here and I guarantee every man, woman, and child that's in this room this morning that the highest that ever member or any member will ever get in alcoholics anonymous is over. That we can be happy, joyous, and free and be of maximum service to God and to those about us, and that is the promise of Alcoholics Anonymous. The main promise in our book that we will be of maximum service to God and to those about us. You know, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. In order to keep it, we have to give it away. In order to keep our love, we have to give love. In order to receive love, We've got to have someone to love. And you have been the people that I love. I got to doing these kind of things about being sponsored. Well, I think sponsorship may be one of the weakest links that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous Day. Some may be good in your area. If it is, it's great. In our area, my personal opinion, not everybody's, but I think maybe sponsorship is a little weak. You know, you might see an old guy come in that back door out there and come in off the farm, been out there slopping holes and feeding cows might have a little bit of manure on his shoes when he comes in there, shaking, sick, wants to try to get sober. You might find one guy, two guys, two guys if you're really lucky. He does go over, shake his hands, and welcome him to Alcoholics Anonymous, give him a cup of coffee, sit down and talk to him. That's what we're supposed to do, right? If you see a sweet young thing with her dress cocked up, the wind coming in that door, you go, fifteen damn guys up, gonna be her sponsor, you know. Uh, and they're going to run back there, they're going to have a big book in one hand, a zipper in the other. <laughs> they going to be a sponsor and they heard something like B, B, or C, C, but I bet it ain't going to be no A and A, you know. Uh, and and I, I, my personal opinion is that women are for women, men are for men, not because we don't know what we're talking about. It's just because stuff happens. If we can't keep our priorities on staying sober, how are we supposed to stay sober? Alcoholics Anonymous has given us the way out. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsorship in their steps, and a home group that we can go to to take the responsibility for our sobriety. And to give it away is to keep it just like we have everything in our hand. You know, there's been uh, times that I've seen, I've been up and down the road, i felt it like paranoia, you know, that I still think, after being sober several years, that that if you see a cop sitting on the opposite side of the road, he's already got pulled over, and some guy is outside of a car with him, I feel like he's after me. You know, I still feel that. They done had me so many times, and come beat on my head because I had words of wisdom for them, you know. And I would tell them what I thought, and they would show me what they thought. And, and uh, I would get scared, you know, but uh, uh, it, this one guy, I felt sorry for him. Uh, uh, he was driving down the road, and he was just doing a perfect job of driving. And he was just having a good day out there, and this policeman seen him, and he said, boy, that guy's doing a perfect job of driving, believe it, tell him. So he goes over, he turns his lights on and pulls out behind that guy, and that guy, psh, he gone. He gone. Can't catch him. Down the road by 10 miles, finally pulls him over. He told that guy, you were doing such a beautiful job of driving, and I wanted to talk and I wanted to compliment you on your driving. What happened to you? And that guy thought a bit, and he said, well, hes I'll tell you. He said, the last two weeks ago, there was a state cop run off my wife, and I thought it was him bringing her back. <laughs> so, you know, I get paranoid. I feel like that a whole lot of times, and, and you know, I, I wonder about stuff. Uh, and I've just had this uh, great feeling and great times in that college anomalies having all the way around our states, you know. When I started doing a whole lot of steps and, and saying the things I was wanting to say or doing the things I wanted to do and trying to get sober and finally feeling like I was getting sober, you know, we have a thing in our book we talk about rigorous honesty and sometimes I caution the people that I sponsor, and God loves some of them here this morning. I love these guys I sponsor, you know. They do me so much good. <laughs> God love them. But anyway, uh, uh, if you're going to be asking the questions, be prepared to accept the answers. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we feel like we're going to have to have this rigorously honest talk with our spouses, girlfriends, or everything. Well, now, you better be a watching out what you're talking. I'll just tell you, this man and woman was married for 50 years, but on her wedding day, this woman asked the guy, he, she said, you know what, we've been married, uh, all the, we're going to be married on, on our wedding day, and said, I don't want you to look in this box i got over here. And the guy thought, well, that's just not a bad deal. I could be able to do that, and I won't have any problem doing that. So they go through 50 years of marriage, him doing his thing, him, her doing her thing there. 50th wedding anniversary. Finally looked up, and he told it, asked his wife, he said, Honey, he said, I believe I have earned the right to look down into that box. And she thought about it, and she thought about it, and she thought about it. And she said, Well, maybe you have. He runs over and flips up top on that box, look down there. He finds two ears of corn and a great big pile of money. God, honey, why have you got two ears of corn down in that box? And oh, she thought so hard, she finally told him. She said, every time that I was unfaithful to you, I would put an ear of corn in that box. Oh, he was so upset, but he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he thought about it, and all the things that he had done, 50 years running the streets, drinking, bar hopping, and all that kind of stuff, he finally tells her, "Honey," he said, "I believe that's forgivable. Two times in fifty years." He said, "I really love you." He said, "I'm just just forgivable. It's forgiven. Forget about it. Don't worry about it." He said, "Well, you get the great big pile of money." She said, "Well, every time I got a box of that, me a bushel of that corn, I'd sell it." <laughs> if, if you don't want to accept the answers, don't ask the question. You know. And Marietta and I have had lots and lots of question and answers certain questions, but, you know, with Marietta going to the, to the program of al and me within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, when I finally left her program alone, she started getting better. <laughs> uh, we have done our thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, like a pair of railroad tracks. I don't know, uh, sometimes it... She outgrows me a great distance, you know, and she's doing such a better job than I am. And she'll get out here in front of me, and sometimes I do it a little better than she does, and I get out here in front of her. And, and, and the only way that we have to keep our railroad tracks tied together is just to have some simple talk. And, you know, when I was drinking, I could not talk to my wife. I yelled at my wife. I shoved my wife. I screamed at my wife. I did not know how to talk to my wife. The one thing that I did when I was drinking, I was always looking in a bar room somewhere for a friend that you can talk to. Always looking for a friend that would understand, right? I was already married to the best friend I could ever have. I didn't even know. Took Alcoholics Anonymous to teach me what a wife was and what a beautiful lady my wife was. Found out about God. Alcoholics Anonymous led me to God. God led me to Alcoholics Anonymous to start with, and you know what? If God, if the Word of God scares anybody here today, I'm glad because God knows that we haven't been scared of a whole lot of things. But yet our fifth step inventory is full of fear. You know everything we do is based on fear, biggest part. But anyway, it seems like God and Saint Peter was sitting around having a little talk, and God was tired. God needed to rest, like you all do right now, I suspect. But God needed rest, and he told St. Peter that he needed a place that he could go where he could rest and that he could just be out of the way of everybody. And St. Peter thought, and he said, let's, let's go and sit on the highest mountain in the world, and no one will find us there. And God thought about that for a while, and he said, no, he said, I don't think so. He said, they invited invite them. They'll they invent a machine and they'll fly around, and they'll find me up on top of that mountain and disturb me. And he said, well, let's go down and sit on the bottom of the ocean. The fish don't even bother us down there. No, they'll invent a machine, and they'll float around, and they'll find me, and they'll disturb me. And God finally thought about it long enough, and he said, I know. I have the perfect place to hide. He said, I will go, and I will dwell within a heart. Of every man, because no one ever looks for me there. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, inside of my heart, there was nothing about God. It was everything about pain. If we want to live in Alcoholics Anonymous, sobriety is an inside job. God is an inside job. Love comes from on the inside. It's the inside job. People that come and love us just like this morning, that through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program working these steps, it all comes from on the inside. Every bit of it. And I want to tell each one of you again that I love everybody here this morning. You know, when we finish these meetings today or for the rest of our life, when we say our last prayer and we have our last meeting, it will not be what you think of me, it will not be what I think of me, but what does God think of me? Thank you. I love you.